Amen. Well, it's really an honor to be here. Uh, like many of you, I've followed a lot of these great uh, prophecy experts for years and just consider it like in heaven to be uh, here with them and meeting them, guys like L.A. and so forth. I want to thank uh, Billy and Brandon for getting us off to a fantastic start last night, although you know, I wish their messages had been a little more exciting and energetic, but uh, <laughs> you know, to each his own, I guess. But, uh, so in my two sessions today, we're going to uh, continue to examine some of the subjects that Billy and Brandon touched on last night. I I'm going to begin with the totalitarian tiptoe. Now the phrase, the totalitarian tiptoe, is pretty common. Some of you may have heard it. It's uh, common among those who study the Luciferian conspiracy. It refers to the methodical, intentional, and usually secret march toward complete planetary control by the elites. The Luciferians, Satan's earthly accomplices, have shifted into high gear, especially in these last three or four years, as they get closer and closer to the end game in their plan for global enslavement. And these days, by the way, they're really no longer even trying to keep it a secret. In fact, I think a better label than the totalitarian tiptoe might be the dictatorial dash, because they are pressing hard for full-spectrum global control. The Luciferian elite work at the behest of Satan to roll out a one-world political, religious, and economic system. And it will be led someday, after the rapture, by the Antichrist. The Apostle John warned, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And that's how we know it's the last hour. So if you look at a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages, we in fact see that the present age, the church age, is indeed the last age. And that phrase, the last days in Scripture, is used repeatedly to refer to this present age. And that's because the only age really to come is the, the final age, the kingdom age, when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, comes back to take the throne and rule in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. When he does, there'll be a transitional period, at least the way I see it. Uh, some people put this as its own age, not a big deal. Uh, but the seven-year tribulation period, the completion of Daniel's 490-year plan of human history, will take us into the return of Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom. If we go back to John's uh, epistle, he says, uh, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which is now already in the world. And that's the premise of my two-volume series that uh, came out in the last few months. And... This is uh, what I'm going to be kind of reflecting on as we go through my two sessions today. The spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception. So Paul tells us that in the last days, this present age, perilous times will come. And I think you'd have to be living under a rock not to recognize that they're here. Um, he says, the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Notice that last part there in yellow, you know, the subtitle of my series is The Gathering Cloud of Deception. And we are living in the great last days of deception. We're living in a time of historic change. The world is changing faster and more radically than at any other time in human history. So much so that everywhere you turn, you see references to it, like this Time Magazine cover article from November of 2020, talking about how the entire world is being reset. Many major news outlets and key world figures are suggesting that we start using B.C. before COVID and A.C. after COVID to reckon time. Here's the New York Times talking about the world before Corona and the world after, or the Financial Times of London, again, before and after COVID. 
Michelle Bachman said not too long ago on Jan Markell's Understanding the Times, we are literally watching the twilight of Western civilization. Now by now everyone's familiar with the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum has been working for some time on this Great Reset. It really constitutes the Luciferian endgame and the Great Reset, contrary to what a lot of newcomers to this study of end times prophecy might think, did not come about as a result of the COVID pandemic. This was something that had been in the work for years prior to the pre-planned uh, you know, control of virus scandemic, as I call it, that was in the works for 22 years prior uh, to rolling it out. They just kind of recasted and made some changes on their website, but this has been their plan all along. And the Great Reset is really a great satanic reset. And I believe we're standing on the precipice of this Luciferian endgame. And in my uh, second volume, I have a whole chapter on the, the Luciferian timetable, how in their own words, their own leaked documents, their own white papers, they're talking about the 2020s up to 2030 as the target for the endgame. Now, one caveat, it doesn't mean it's going to happen because ultimately God, the creator of the universe, is the arbiter of the timetable. But it is helpful to know the enemy's you know, plan. Amen? Yeah. So you know, obviously we want to know the enemy's blueprint and be prepared. Proverbs 22.3 says the wise person sees trouble coming and prepares for it. But it, that's what their plan is. And as we heard last night, the man at the center of all this is uh, Klaus Schwab, who likes to appear in his galactic garb there. It was mentioned last night that he was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. And his childhood was in the midst of the uh, Nazi Germany regime. Uh, Ravensburg is about 100 miles north of Davos, Switzerland, where he would later uh, start, uh, with a little help from the Rockefellers and Kissinger and other groups like that, the World Economic Forum. And just about everybody that is a part of the Luciferian elite is somehow tied right now to the World Economic Forum, everywhere you look. Uh, that includes, of course, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, it includes uh, Bill Gates, it includes Henry Kissinger, uh, guys like David Rockefeller, Al Gore. John Kerry, and of course, you all know Harari, who is Klaus Schwab's right-hand man. So if you look at his book, The Great Reset, uh, they outline essentially five pillars of civilization that need to be reimagined. The technological reset, societal reset, economic, environmental, and geopolitical resets. And I'd like to just give you a few quotes from that book. Many of these you may be familiar with, but just to give you a taste of where they think we are Headed. The pandemic, he said, represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. See, they believe that this world belongs to Satan. And they have been trying, uh, since Satan got kicked out of heaven, to wrest control of it away from God. King David talks about that in Psalm 2. Uh, at the time of writing, referring to the time of the writing of The Great Reset, this book, uh, the pandemic continues to worsen globally. Many of us are want wondering when things will return to normal, and Schwab says the short answer is never. Not if I have anything to say about it, he's thinking. The world as we know it in the early months of 2020 is no more. It's dissolved in the context of the pandemic. Again, referring back to that New York Times article and the Financial Times article, they're all kind of in cahoots, but he says many pundits have referred to a before coronavirus and an after coronavirus era. And notice what he says, we will continue to be surprised, they won't be, but he thinks the rest of the world will be, and he's just telegraphing it, both by both the rapidity and unexpected nature of these changes. As they conflate with each other, notice they will provoke second, third, fourth, and more order consequences, cascading effects of unforeseen outcomes. Uh, 
And he says, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. One of the um, you know, key predictions for the world in 2030 that you've all seen in that video that the World Economic Forum put out. Now, some of you may not be aware of his more recent book that came out just last year called The Great Narrative. And here he ratchets up the rhetoric a little bit and becomes even more brazen. He says the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped in a way that will make them unrecognizable in just a few years. Remember, their target is 2025 to 2030. He said the Great Reset will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies and societies, as well as in the institutions like marriage, you know, church, religion, laws and rules that govern them. Our life habits and modes of consumption will also need to change drastically. I mean, he says, disruption is coming. Get ready for it. It will be both good and bad, good from their perspective, bad from ours, and major. New technology challenges our beliefs, morals, religions, and politics at their very core. I mean, could they be any more direct? And, what, uh, and he goes on to say, nothing is more effective than the power of narratives. So what is the primary tool or weapon in their attempts to roll out this great satanic reset? Deception. Deception. That's why the subtitle of my books are, is the, great, uh, is the uh, gathering cloud of deception. Notice he says, developing stories that are both pertinent and convincing to others. Developing stories. This is the best way to motivate those with whom we interact socially, politically, and economically, and to move the agenda forward. In other words, lies. It's a new goal. It, 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 a new golden age would require major institutional innovations, and notice, among them, a supranational institution to regulate finance at the global level. Read, go, global government. That's what they're talking about. And so before we go deeper down this rabbit hole, I want to take a moment to to kind of look at where this global one-world satanic system fits in God's plan of the ages. And so let's take a look at human government. What is the role of human government in God's plan of the ages? And if you step back and look at the big picture, you see that God's plan as revealed in God's Word reveals a start with globalism, a shift into nationalism, but a return full circle back to globalism. So it started with a globalist paradigm. You go back to the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, divine globalism. And if we kind of trace human history, we can start with creation, uh, following the traditional dating uh, based on internal and external evidence from God's Word. Creation puts it at about 4004 B.C. I realize that some of you, probably not very many, but in this crowd, but some of you may be surprised to learn that the earth's only 6,000 years old, and that's because you've believed one of the greatest lies perpetrated by the Luciferians thus far in Satan's campaign to deceive the whole world. Uh, thanks to the satanic influence of Darwinian thought through the compulsory government school system with a little help from the Rockefellers and Carnegies along the way, most people tend to think that mankind has gotten better and better and better, that we started out dumb as a rock over millions of years ago, evolving from a wet rock and then be eventually became intelligent beings, but that's not true at all. God's Word says we started out brilliant in the image of God, and Satan has been shipping away at mankind from the very beginning. Well, it took only about 1,500 years for mankind after the fall of man to become so evil that God decided He would destroy the earth. The Genesis 6 event took place approximately 1,536 years after the fall. The global flood took place 120 years later in 2348 B.C. That's about 1,656 years after creation. Remember Genesis 6.3 says, 
The Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. The 120 year reference there refers to the number of years of grace that God would give humankind to repent before the flood. By the way, another judgment day is coming, an eschatological one, at which time God will only give those left behind after the rapture seven years to heed the warnings and get ready. And then comes the end when God inaugurates the long-awaited kingdom. Today, 4,371 years since the beginning of the flood, things have gotten exponentially worse as Satan and his demons repeatedly try to take over the earth. The flood ended a year later, roughly, in the year 2347, and that's when we see the first major shift in God's plan for human government. You see the table of nations given to us in Genesis 10. After the flood, God's plan of the ages shifted from divine globalism to nationalism. And that's the age we're still living in today. And make no mistake, we should never heed to anything other than God's divine design, which is nationalism, until Christ comes back and says, now it's time to return once again to, global, uh, to divine globalism. So we go back to key events and we see the Tower of Babel after the flood, 2242 B.C. This time it only took 100 years after Noah and the right, his righteous family got off the ark. Uh, before mankind once again descended into the depths of wickedness. The slippery slope into abject evil was much faster this time. But we see at that time the whole earth had one language and one speech and they said let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. The Tower of Babel. It was a post-flood rebellion against God by Noah's descendants. And God judged them by dividing the single language into multiple language families. And as these groups spread out, and became isolated. Certain features like skin shade and eye shape and things like that became dominant in certain regions of the world. But why did these re rebels want to build a tower? And to understand that reason, we've got to go back to chapter 10 in Genesis and a man by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod was the son of Cush and grandson of Ham, one of Noah's sons. The Hebrew name Nimrod means we shall rebel. The biblical Nimrod is the first powerful king on earth, and the first cities of his kingdom were cities like the infamous Babylon and Nineveh and Cala of Assyria. And Josephus, that first century historian, a contemporary of Christ, tells us something very interesting about Nimrod. He says, quote, He, Nimrod, persuaded them to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor, and little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his power, Nimrod's power. He threatened to have his revenge on God if he wished to inundate the earth again, for he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of their forefathers. In other words, this time they said, we're ready. Bring it on, God. You want to try to flood the world again? We're going to build this tower so that we can rise above the floodwaters. But God responded like this. The Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. And they called the name of this place Babel. Babel in Hebrew means confusion. And thus we see after this the onset of nationalism. And as time goes on in God's plan of the ages, we're going to see a return to globalism. As the Bible comes full circle eventually to a pre-fall Edenic state when Christ comes back to make all things new. The return to globalism will take place in two stages. First, it will involve a satanic globalism, as Daniel the prophet and many other prophets tell us. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth to devour the whole earth. 
the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And his, his authority was given over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's satanic globalism. King David, a thousand years before Christ, talks about uh, this uh, satanic globalism, this conspiracy, the Luciferian conspiracy, as these kings of the earth and rulers gather together, conspire together to try to break the bonds and pieces uh, of the bonds and cords of God's control. Satan has control issues. He does not want to be controlled. He wanted to usurp God's sovereign control. He led a coup in heaven, which didn't turn out too well, and now he's trying to take over the earth. But the return to globalism will eventually come full circle back to God's divine globalism. As David goes on to tell us, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> Uh, he says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In the Hebrew, that's in the past tense. It's actually in a tense of Hebrew that refers to the fact that this is something that even though it hasn't occurred in time, space, and matter, is as good as done. From God's perspective, it's already there. Christ is not sitting on the Davidic throne today. He's not sitting on the throne ruling over the world as all the prophets talk about. He's sitting at the right hand of God as Psalm 110 talks about. It's the throne of waiting. And he's waiting to come back and put all things under his feet. So we see that the Luciferian plot is absolutely no match for the Lord's plan. Uh, one of only two psalms attributed to Solomon reminds us of this ultimate messianic reign when he says, Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Isaiah the prophet, we're familiar with this passage around Christmas, but most of us forget that really the only the first you know, two phrases there have to do with the first advent. The rest of it is all eschatological, referring to the second coming of Christ, when the government will be upon His shoulder. And of the increase of government and peace, there will be no end from this time forward, even forevermore. Anybody who thinks we're living in the kingdom age today is reading a different Bible. I mean, as you look around us, do you see that all the governments of the world are in subjection to the Son of God? By no means. Uh, Daniel, going back to Daniel, talks about the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever. So in my end times charts, I talk about how once the rapture happens, we're going to see this return to globalism. And the idea of global dominance is what the Luciferians refer to as the new world order. The new world order is what they are tiptoeing towards. So if we go back to the year 1620, November 21st, a group of settlers uh, came over to uh, the North American continent on the Mayflower. And we call them pilgrims today. Uh, it was a grueling 10 weeks at sea on the Mayflower, 102 passengers and 30 crew members, but they landed on the tip of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and they came over wanting to worship God and uh, worship our Creator and read the Bible and pray and be godly men and women. Uh, so we see clearly, you know, 150 some odd years before the founding of this country, that God's fingerprints were all over the founding of America. But what a lot of people forget is that Satan's fingerprints were all over the founding of America too. Because about 150 years later, in revolutionary America, things would be entirely different. From the earliest days of our country, Luciferians, Freemasons, and later the Illuminati founded in the same year our country was founded, uh, wanted to seek a beachhead for the satanic agenda to take over the world. It's no accident that the discovery of America was referred to in the history books as the New World because they wanted a new world order. They wanted a place where they could have control and power and authority. But the plans of the Luciferians were delayed when they vastly underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church 
working in and through believers in the early days of this country. Because believers had a 120-year, 150-year head start. And the power of God's word, the power of freedom, the power of liberty took root. And for the first 150 years or so of our country's history, the Luciferians were playing catch-up as God used his people in this great country of ours to spread the gospel and proclaim his world, not only across the land, but across the world. But by the turn of the 20th century, the Luciferians had had enough. Something must be done if they were going to usher in a new world order. America must be destroyed, must be knocked out of the way, because it is the one country that is standing in the way of complete and total global dominance. So what they did was they set up out to create chaos in order to achieve order, uh, the new world order to be in fact. So key players in the Luciferian game around the turn of the 20th century were guys like Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, Henry Ford. They began setting in motion an intentional plan to bring down America in order to usher in the new world order as they had originally planned. It's called the Hegelian dialectic. They leaned heavily upon Friedrich Hegel, that German philosopher's uh, ideas. The Hegelian dialectic, also known as problem, reaction, solution, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, controlled opposition, divide and conquer, a lot of different nuances of it. But the idea is we provide a problem, you provide a reaction, and then we will provide the pre-planned solution. We will get you to go right where we want you to go, and you'll do it willingly. You will happily hop on the train, right? You'll happily get in line uh, for the gene-altering bioinjections as we talked about last night. So these uh, key men, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, and others, uh, were featured in an eight-hour, four-part miniseries on the History Channel back in 2012, but they called it the men who built America. I think it would be more accurate to say the men who tore down America. Listen to what Rockefeller said. The ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee. And notice, and I will pay more for that than for any other under the sun. And that's exactly what he and his wealthy elites did. They bought their way into influencing just about every major industry in our country. And it was all by design. They influenced the medical industry by taking over the boards of major medical schools like Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Harvard. They took over the pharmaceutical industry and changed the face of medicine forever. You know, Western medicine's only been around for about 120 years, and yet it's, everybody thinks it's the norm, you know. And nobody lined up for 5,900 years to stick themselves with needles 60 times by the time they're 15 years old. Now we do, and people think that's the norm. They took over the education industry, requiring compulsory government schooling by 1918 in America. That included the textbook and publishing industries where they could control the narrative. And by the way, if you think it was bad when the Luciferians took over the textbook industry, just imagine how bad it's becoming with AI calling the shots and creating our textbooks. They took over the finance industry by establishing the Federal Reserve in a secret meeting on Jekyll Island in 1913, the private Federal Reserve. I don't think I have to tell this audience that the Federal Reserve is no more uh, federal than Federal Express. It's a privately owned company owned by six families. And they did this under cover of darkness at Jekyll Island. I had the opportunity recently, one of my bucket list items as we've traveled for the last 15 years studying and researching the Luciferian conspiracy to check this one off my list. So these are our pictures that I took as I went across the bridge there to Jekyll Island and visited the Jekyll Island Club as it used to be known, now known as the Jekyll Island Club Resort. But this is where these men met over the Christmas holidays, a few rogue congressmen secretly meeting 
to basically take over the finances of the United States of America. My wife took this picture of me standing out in front of the Jekyll Island Club, and I find it uh, quite appropriate and you know, no coincidence that as we're taking these pictures, the Luciferians are engaging in some geoengineering in the clouds above. <laughs> Here's a picture of one of the meeting rooms inside the Jekyll Island Club. You notice this one they labeled the Federal Reserve in homage to the fact that this is where the Federal Reserve was founded, not necessarily in that room, but on that club. Here's another picture from inside the halls of that club. But we see throughout the years echoes of globalism. Statements made by American and global leaders over the past hundred years reveal a, a running theme of their desire to usher in full-spectrum global control. Let me just run through some of these. Uh, here's uh, Carol Quigley, a key figure because he's the one that exposed a lot of this in the late 60s. He was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. I have a whole chapter on the Council on Foreign Relations in Volume 2, and it talks about the key role that they have played in advancing this globalist agenda. And he kind of let the cat out of the bag in his famous 1,300-page, uh, eight-pound book, Tragedy and Hope when he said their aim is, less, is nothing less than to create a world, of, world system of financial control in financial hands that's able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. He says the individual's freedom and choice will be controlled and he will be numbered from birth and tracked. We'll come back to that in a moment. He says they created the fake left-right paradigm, which I have a whole chapter on that in both books, uh, kind of building on it, uh, this idea that as long as we give people a, a perceived choice, again, the Hegelian dialectic, then every four years we can convince them that all they got to do is throw the rascals out, when in reality it's a one-way street with prostitutes lining both sides of the street. Where no, nothing ever changes. And if it did, then any time we would have a complete conservative control of the White House, a, a veto-proof, uh, I mean, a uh, filibuster-proof Congress and Senate and a, a supermajority on the Supreme Court, we would change things. And we've had that multiple times in my lifetime with the Gingrich Revolution, the Tea Party Revolution, you name it. Even Trump had control of both houses. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Here's Benjamin Disraeli, twice served as the Prime Minister of the UK. He said, the world is governed by very different personages to what is imagined by those who are not themselves behind the scenes. All these quotes and many more are uh, kind of splattered throughout uh, both books as I make the case for the Luciferian conspiracy. Uh, Winston Churchill. World War II era said world this world conspiracy has been steadily growing and the, the goal is the creation of an authoritative world order. That's what we want to do after World War II. One of his contemporaries from France, Charles de Gaulle, after World War II said, yeah, nations must unite in a world government or perish. James Paul Warburg around the same time, by the way, he's the son of the famous Paul Warburg, uh, one of those uh, conspirators who met on Jekyll Island to establish the Federal Reserve. Uh, but James Paul Warburg says, we shall have world government, whether you like it or not, by conquest or consent. And then Brzezinski is a name that many of you may know, and if you don't, you need to get to know it. He died in 2017, but he was a key player in this Luciferian conspiracy. You can always tell the key players because they work both sides. You know, they, they serve pres uh, Republican and Democratic presidents, uh, members of the Uniparty, right? And uh, here's Brzezinski saying, uh, this regionalization is in keeping with the trilateral plan. Uh, Brandon, I think it was, it might have been uh, uh, Billy, but one of them last night talked about this you know, plan to divide up the world into the ten uh, regions. This is what he's talking about here, coming out of the trilateral commission. And uh, he says it's ultimately leading toward the goal of a one-world government. National sovereignty, he said, is no longer a viable concept. 
We need centralized global control. The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society, unrestrained by traditional values. In the context there, he's talking about traditional values of liberty and freedom and, and God-fearing Christians. He goes on to say, soon it will be possible, this by the way was in 1970, uh, in his famous book, Between Two Ages, uh, soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen, and those files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. Shortly, the public will be unable to reason for themselves. They'll only be able to parrot the information they've been given on the previous night's news. He says, watch this, persisting social crisis, the emergence of a charismatic personality, and the exploitation of mass media to obtain public confidence would be the stepping stones in the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society. Go back to Psalm 2. What are they trying to do? Break the cords of control. And then just before he died, he made this chilling statement. Today it is infinitely easier to kill one million people than to control one million people. Now in my second session this afternoon, I'm going to talk at length about the, I'm calling it bloodlust, the Luciferian depopulation agenda, and you will be stunned at some of the things they are saying in plain sight about how much they love death, love blood, and want to kill people. They want to reduce the world's population to a manageable amount. But this concept of the New World Order has been frequently talked about. A lot of people, even if you're not studying end times or the Luciferian conspiracy, are familiar with George H.W. Bush's famous statement in his 1991 State of the Union address when he said the world can now seize this opportunity in the context of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order. But he wasn't by any means the first person to talk about this. It goes all the way back to the founding of our country. Richard Nixon in the 70s, when, in 1972, when he was meeting with the China, Chinese president, said, each of us has the hope to build a new world order. Gorbachev said, we're moving toward a new world order. Henry Kissinger repeatedly talked about the new world order and said it cannot happen without U.S. participation, meaning New, you know, United States compulsion. We've got to compel them to come along. Uh, he says, there will be a new world order and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. And then back in 2008, when Obama got, got selected, excuse me, I almost had a Freudian slip there. When Obama got selected, the first true Manchurian candidate actually birthed and groomed from infancy to become the president. Uh, he said, referring to Obama, I think that his, Obama's, task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. See, they really believed that he was their guy and they, they were going to get across the finish line under him. But what they often forget, of course, is that Satan is not omnipotent. And so even though they march to his tune, there are all kinds of infighting and competing agendas and uh, fights and skirmishes. And it's well documented that Obama got in part of the New Guard elite. And, and differed with the old guard Luciferians. And he kind of went rogue a couple of times and it, it, they fizzled and they weren't able to quite get it across the finish line. But they pulled out all the stops now and they are doing everything they can uh, to make sure that they roll it out, according to their plan anyway, by 2030. H.G. Wells in his book, The New World Order, that's the title, he said, countless people are going to hate the New World Order and will die protesting it. David Rockefeller said, we're on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. He said in his memoirs, not long before he died, he also died in 2017 at the age of 101. It's amazing how these Luciferians always live to, to old age, which, you know, kind of follows when you have the secret cures to cancer and all this stuff and you're not letting them available to the general public. 
But anyway, he said, some even believe we are a part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing me and my family as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. Well, if that's the charge, I'm guilty and I'm proud of it. He said, the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite is surely preferable to the national autodetermination practiced in past centuries. I mean, you naive old school traditionalists that still believe in national sovereignty and a constitution and the pride of America, you're nuts. He, Henry Kissinger, I mentioned him earlier, he said, today America would be outraged if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. But tomorrow they will be grateful, and this is especially true if they were told, notice again this narrative that Klaus Schwab reminds us of, of we're going we're gonna to make up stories to convince people to come along. If they were told that there were an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, that threatened their very existence, it is then that all peoples of the world will plead to deliver them from this evil. The one thing every man fears is the unknown, and when presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by the world government. Folks, I believe we are really teetering on the brink, if you will, of that shift away from nationalism back into globalism. Presently, the Bible tells us, going back to John's uh, epistle, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And Satan has many earthly co-conspirators, many earthly accomplices that are helping him along the way that are referenced, again, going back to that passage in Psalm 2 as they try to break the bonds of the triune Godhead and cast away their cords. It's all about control. And so the Luciferian conspiracy that I outlined in the first two or three chapters of volume one looks like this. It involves Satan, evil spirits, and human accomplices. You know, conspiracies as are, old, are as old as time itself. And they date all the way back to the original conspiracy here between Satan and his allies to overthrow God in heaven. But these human agents, these human accomplices, are really the face of the conspiracy today. By the way, I talk at length in Volume 1 about the history of the term conspiracy theory, how it was made up by the CIA based on a leaked document, uh, and it was intended to be a pejorative term to help uh, you know, discredit the truth movement uh, related to the JFK assassination. Those that saw through the Warren Commission and realized it was a pack of lies, they said, we got to We've got to somehow discredit these people. Let's come up with a, a term. It's called mimetic hegemony that we, can, that we can use to increase our power and cause people to look down upon them. And so I always like to give the caveat, I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true because the Bible has a lot to say about conspiracies. Um, but the Luciferian conspiracy, I diagram it and explain it in a little more detail in volume one, but essentially it involves three tiers. You've got the top tier, those six or eight, six or eight families, roughly, we know a few names. Um, but these are the ones, and I hope this doesn't uh, really sound too distasteful to anyone here, but frankly, after last night, I feel like I can pretty much say anything and it's, gonna, <laughs> it's not gonna be uh, crossing any lines, but... Uh, but anyway, these are the families that are literally sitting in dark, smoke-filled rooms, sacrificing children and drinking blood as they take their marching orders from Satan. They worship Him the way you and I worship our Creator. They pray to Him the way you and I pray to God in Jesus' name. And they're not necessarily the face of it, but they're definitely pulling the strings. At the second level, you've got hundreds of thousands of people. Many of them are aware that they're engaged in a Luciferian conspiracy. 
But many of them are on a need-to-know basis and don't. And then at the third level, you've got multiple millions, probably most of whom have no idea that they're part of a Luciferian cosmic struggle. Uh, many of them are in it for other selfish, worldly, fleshly, carnality-type reasons, power, money, sex. So they're not necessarily good people, um, but, but they certainly don't understand the spiritual ramifications of it. And by the way, many at this level are good people, some of them even Christians. I mean, not everybody that works at the CIA is, you know, a part of the problem. I, I have people all the time tell me, well, my, my great aunt is a secretary on the fourth floor of the CIA, and she's never talked about any of this. And I go, well, it's probably on a need-to-know basis, and I doubt that she's, you know, in the planning sessions for the takeover of the world. So, look, there are a lot of people at this level that, that, that are, you know, not complicit by any stretch. But back to some more quotes, uh, here's uh, Teddy Roosevelt saying, Behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. That Canadian uh, Satan worshiper Manly Hall, in his famous book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, he was a 33rd degree Mason, he said, There are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth, and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. He knows because he's been given marching orders. He channels demons, or channeled demons, right? And that's why I chose as the template for this uh, PowerPoint presentation, a world with the marionette strings, uh, you know, uh, coming down from above. Edward Bernays said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen <clears throat> mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power in our country. Edward Bernays, I wish we had more time to talk about him. I talked pretty extensively, several paragraphs about him in the book, in volume one, I think it is. But uh, he's a powerful guy. I actually, in researching for this presentation, I found an old YouTube video of him on the David Letterman show in like 1985, I think it was. And it was really funny, actually. Um, he was 93 years old at that time. But this guy's the father of propaganda, the father of modern public relations, key player in advancing the globalist lies. But he said, there are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter said, the real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power from behind the scenes. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson famously said, uh, I've been, since I've entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. He said, some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there's a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. Now, in modern times, we continue to see the increasing uh, march you know, toward this one world system, the, the, the influence of these Luciferians. Let me play a few clips for you here. Uh, some of these you may have seen from other uh, presenters and, and researchers, but uh, if not, some of these may be a little surprising to you. For example, here's Walter Cronkite at the World Federalist Association receiving the Global Governance Award. This is after he had retired. And in this 26-second uh, clip, he refers to evangelical conservatives who think only Christ can preside or should preside over a one-world government. Who's he talking about? Me and you. <laughs> Uh, you know, and he scoffs at them and mocks them. You can hear the crowd laughing as he talks about it. Their leader, Pat Robertson, has written in a book a few years ago that we should have a world government, but only 
when the Messiah arrives. <laughs> he wrote, and literally, any attempt to achieve world order before that time must be the work of the devil. Well, join me. I'm, I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. Well, join me. I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. A little bit later in that, a little bit later in that uh, presentation, they pipe in the first lady at the time, Hillary Rodham Clinton, and she offers her congratulations. And listen to what she says. We would like to bring you a message from the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter, on receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. It wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. That's a catchy phrase. Many of you, uh, you know, from generations right before mine recognize that. But it had a little double entendre there. You know, it wasn't the news until we tell you what to think and what to believe. Remember what uh, we read in that Brzezinski quote. Uh, here's um, Richard Haas on the right there. He is uh, the... Uh, President has been since 2003 of the Council on Foreign Relations, which, as I mentioned, is a key player in this global conspiracy. Uh, and here is uh, he is with uh, Joe Biden. And uh, in this 17-second uh, clip, Biden says uh, he admits that he works for Richard Haas. The subject, though, today is uh, another article in the, uh, in the magazine. Uh, I probably should introduce myself to people, everybody. Uh, my name is Richard Haas, by the way. Uh, I work here at the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, I work for Richard. <laughs> uh, I work for Richard. Of course, with Biden, you never know whether that was a Freudian slip of the tongue and an unwitting admission or just another you know, bizarre non sequitur. Who knows? But, uh, but uh, here is uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton telling us that the CFR tells her what to do. Thank you very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City, uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. Now, here's the Secretary of State of the United States of America admitting on tape that the CFR tells her what to do and what we should be thinking about the future. Right? And then, uh, by the way, I'm an equal opportunity offender, so I don't like to just pick on the liberals. I like to pick on the Republicans as well. So here's Dick Cheney. Uh, who acknowledges on tape that, uh, you know, his conservative Wyoming constituents aren't too happy about his connection to the CFR. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. Another aspect of this totalitarian tiptoe is the total biometric surveillance. And I, I get into this uh, in uh, uh, really in earnest in chapter, uh, I forget the chapter, but volume two of Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of uh, Deception. And this brings us to Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, he is uh, really one of the most evil men on the planet today, overtly. I shouldn't say 
you know, there are plenty of, pl plenty of evil out there, but he's just really overtly, you know, evil and doesn't seem to hide it. And here he is talking about this total biometric surveillance and how they're going to use it to usher in control. Because remember, Satan's not omnipotent, nor omnipresent, nor omniscient. So if he's going to gain control over the whole world like the book of Revelation describes, he's going to have to use some artificial means. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. What we have seen so far, it's corporations and governments collecting data about where we go, who we meet, what movies we watch. The next phase is the surveillance going under our skin. We now see mass surveillance systems established even in democratic countries, which previously rejected them. And we also see a change in the nature of surveillance. Previously, surveillance was mainly above the skin. Now it's going under the skin. Governments want to know not just where we go or who we meet. Above all, they want to know what is happening under our skin. What's our body temperature? What's our blood pressure? What, what is our medical condition? Now humans are developing even bigger powers than ever before. We are really acquiring divine powers of creation and destruction. We are really upgrading humans into gods. We are acquiring, for instance, the, the power to re-engineer life. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. You see, dictate, yeah, Jesus Christ is fake news. I hope you caught that. A dictator's dream about eliminating privacy because they have a thirst for power, an insatiable thirst for power. And they want to know everything about you, including what you are thinking. And in this next clip, uh, Harari reminds us that uh, he sees science as a function of power. Uh, listen to what he says. Science is not really about truth. It's about power. For the first time in history, it's possible to completely eliminate privacy. Mm -hmm. It was just never possible before, and it is possible now. Something fundamental has changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, dictators always dreamt about completely eliminating privacy, monitoring everybody all the time, and knowing everything you do, and not just everything you do, but even everything you, you think and everything you feel. They could never do it because it was technically impossible. Now it's possible. Now it's possible. And that's why they're all salivating. That's why 80-something-year-old uh, Klaus Schwab can really taste it. He thinks he's, he's got it. They're there. And that's why we need to be on alert and be ready because they're, if, again, if God doesn't intervene, uh, you know, they're, they're chomping at the bit and they're going to roll out something that was, is going to make the control of virus scandemic look tame uh, by comparison. But they, they, they think bodies and minds are a product, a commodity, a project. Listen to this 19-second quote. 
The big products of the coming century will not be shoes or clothes or cars or weapons. The big product of the 21st century are going to be bodies and minds. So I think we are heading to, towards the upgrading of Homo sapiens into gods. The upgrading of Homo sapiens into gods. Elon Musk is a leading uh, transhumanist and he admits that technology could be used by a group of elites to take over the world. And this is a very short clip. I, I wish I had a better audio quality, but hopefully uh, you can hear what he's saying. Let me tell you what he's gonna say. He says, quote, if one company or small group of people manages to develop godlike digital super intelligence, they could take over the world, end quote. Because if one company or small group of people manages to develop godlike digital super intelligence, they could take over the world. This is the same Elon Musk who said, quote, soon we will be able to turn you into a expletive butterfly if we want to. Ray Kurzweil, another a transhumanist, was asked, uh, does God exist? He said, well, does God exist? Eh, I would say not yet, but we're working on it. You know, we're we're going to create him before too long. Uh, you see this all over the news. Here's uh, in the height of the pandemic in June of 2020, an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about the end of humanity. This is what they're, they're striving for. Uh, the fourth IR, the fourth industrial revolution, another one of Klaus Schwab's books back from 2013, says technologies will not stop at becoming part of the physical world around us. They will become part of us beneath the skin. Today's external devices will almost certainly become implantable in our brains. And here's a news story from just a week ago, or two, I guess it's two weeks ago now, February 18th, 2023, on CNBC, where the company Synchron is, uh, which is backed by Bezos and Gates, began testing mind-controlled computing, where a person sitting in front of a computer screen and just basically thinks about what they want the computer to do, and it will do it. Right. Uh, here is the CEO of Nokia, the cell phone company, admitting at a World Economic Forum seminar that cell phones eventually by the year 2030 will be built directly into our bodies. I think it will go, it, it will, first of all, it will definitely happen. I, I, I was talking about 6G earlier, which is around 20, 2030. I would say that by then, definitely the smartphone as we know it today will not anymore be, be the usual kind of the most common interface. Wow. It, many of these things will be built directly into our, our, our bodies. Smartphones, as we know them today, will be a thing of the past. They will be built directly into our bodies. Some more uh, Schwab. Implanted devices will also will likely also help to communicate thoughts normally expressed verbally through a built-in smartphone. See, they're all, you know, uh, repeating the same thing, and potentially unexpressed thoughts or moods by reading brain waves and other signals. Our newfound ability to manipulate life will impact our humanness, he said in the book that came out last year. He said, these technologies can intrude into the hitherto private space of our minds, reading our thoughts and influencing our behavior. And another key aspect of this uh, you know, planetary full-spectrum control is something I think uh, Brandon mentioned last night, and that is central bank digital currencies. Uh, this really comes right out of Revelation 13. You know, people have been talking about precursors to the mark of the beast and technology and systems that could be used for the mark of the beast for since our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have been around. But what's different this time is they're not just talking about UPC codes that ostensibly are intended to be tracking inventory 
But those of us that know Bible prophecy look at that and say, huh, that could be used to, to, for the mark of the beast. Now they're basically coming right out and saying, no, this new technology is intended to track everything you do, everything you say, everywhere you go, and everything you buy or sell, which is exactly what the Bible tells us in, in Revelation 13. Uh, no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the beast. So here, here's Pippa Malmgren at the World Government Summit back in 2022. And she said, I, I'll say this boldly. We're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having almost a perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. And by, I think she, she misspelled control there. By clarity, she meant control, right? So the central bank digital currencies uh, are a tool of total enslavement. Uh, I wish I had more time to go into to some of this, but let me just give you a few highlights. First of all, everything will be tokenized, as we learned last night. Uh, it's all about your carbon footprint, social credit score, your medical status, even your water usage. And based upon these components, they will determine how you can live and what you can do and where you can go and what you can buy. I think we, someone played this quote last night about uh, Michael Evans, the president of the Alibaba Group, a Chinese multinational technology company, at a World Economic Forum meeting, uh, talking about this individual carbon footprint tracker. Where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned, we don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Yeah, coming soon to a digital ID near you, the individual carbon footprint tracker. Just stay tuned, you know, be ready, like, it's a, like they're announcing the grand opening of a new theme park or something, right? Um, but uh, many of you know Catherine Austin Fitz, I've followed her for many, many years, uh, respect her highly, and she said, I would describe this as a slavery system. So we're talking about shifting out of freedom, where we have freedom to roam and freedom to say what we want, into a complete control system 24-7, including mind control, by the way. Technology gives you the ability to institute a complete control system. If they don't want you to be able to use your money more than five miles from your home, that's it. Your money will turn off five miles from your home. And this isn't just uh, commentators reflecting on it. This is what they're saying in their own words. Tom Mutton is the CBC director for the Bank of England, and he said there could be some socially beneficial outcomes from CBDCs, preventing activity which is seen to be socially harmful in some way. By whose standard? They're not running their social standards through the grid of God's word and his infallible moral standards. They're basing it on culture. So to them, rejecting LGBTQ is socially harmful. So therefore, if you stand firm on the, the biblical view of man and woman and marriage, that's harmful. And so therefore, they're going to prevent you from doing that. Augustine Karstens is the head of the Bank for International Settlements. He said the key with the CBDC is that the central bank would have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use. So what we're talking about here is this idea of smart cities and the Internet of Things. That's why facial recognition is such a core component of it. When we allow them to roll out the naked body scanners that cause cancer at uh, eight times the national rate and the new ones that unzip your DNA at the airports after 9-11, that was just a test case. They knew all along they were going to ultimately roll out complete facial recognition, and it's already happening in many airports now. They're actually, you have to stand there and take your picture like you're at the DMV to be able to get through uh, security. 
Um, the U.S. has more facial recognition cameras per capita than any other country in the world. But this idea of the 15-minute cities, uh, this was brought up uh, last night, but uh, they market it as a positive thing, that you'll have everything you need within 15 to 20 minutes, like the tri-state city here in the Netherlands, or the one that was talked about last night, the line in Saudi Arabia, uh, or this uh, World Mayor Summit in Buenos Aires last year in October, just a few months ago where key mayors from around the world got together and uh, you know, hailed the, the merits of these types of smart cities. But as Aman Jabi has reminded us, a smart city is just a polite word for an invisible open air concentration camp. That's what it is. It's all about control. It's the reason ranchers put fences up around their cattle so they can control them. So what do you think they think of you? Personal cars will be a thing of the past. You'll not be able to travel more than 15 to 20 minutes from where you live. And of course, a key component of this is the cloud, which they've been rolling out for the last 10 to 15 years. But remember, the cloud, and a lot of people forget this. It is very convenient. Listen, I get it, and I use it for convenience, but I do it eyes wide open. You need to remember the cloud is just somebody else's computer. And in the case of the Luciferians, it's Satan's computer. And it's tied directly to the servers of the Luciferian elite. Another issue that you uh, may or may not have really focused on is this idea of zero trust. It's happening right before our eyes. It's this, uh, uh, you know, two-factor authentication. How many of you hate that? I do. I mean, we've been conditioned to think it's good because they tell us it's to protect our identity. That's not what it's about at all. There is a concept, a protocol in cybersecurity today called zero trust. And that's where they treat everyone like a criminal, including you. So you're not allowed to access your own data, your own devices, your own apps, your own computer without first jumping through a series of multiple hoops. And so that's why they've gone to this two-factor authentication. It's not about protecting you. It's never about your best interest. The globalist and big tech giants never sit around in their posh boardrooms and ask, how can we make things better for our customers? They want to make more money. They want to have more control. Two-factor authentication is not to protect you. It's to control you. Uh, you know, uh, I've turned it all off on mine because, frankly, where we live up in the mountains of Colorado, we don't get cell coverage. And so when they need to send me an SMS text with a one-time code, I can't get it. And so it's really frustrating when I need, so I, as much as possible, I turn it all off so that I can get in and access my own bank accounts and my own tools and resources. Uh, but really, it's a small step. And again, they make it sound like we're just protecting you from hackers and we're protecting your identity, but it's a small step from having to prove that you are you to having to prove that you're a good person whose social credit score and carbon footprint are acceptable. And that's where they're heading. It's about conditional access. That's what this zero trust policy is all about. There was a BBC documentary called Orwell, A Life in Pictures, uh, that uh, has in the final scene a, a recreated, fictionalized Orwell that makes the following ominous prediction. And you'll recognize some quotes from the real Orwell in the book 1984. But the quote goes like this, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going at the present time. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. And there are a few things here in recent years that my family and I have set as lines we will not cross. One of those was the vaccine, I'd sooner die. Uh, and another one is the digital ID. 
And when they roll that out, uh, like they did in India with the Adhar system, uh, it's going to be difficult to resist. But resist we must, even at great personal cost. It's going to be harder to buy groceries. It's going to be harder to live. It's going to be impossible to do things. That's what they did in Adhar. It's not technically speaking required under penalty of death. But in India, if you want to pay your income taxes, the only way they allow you to do it is through the Adhar system. And if you don't pay your income taxes, guess what? You go to jail. So it's a, it's a de facto way of doing it. It's just like the mandates, right? No, 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 you don't have to take the vaccine. We respect your personal freedom, but you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to travel. You're not going to be able to shop. You know. So this is what's coming. And I, I, I appreciated this statement, don't let it happen. Uh, obviously easier said than done, but I think that's what we're going to have to do. So the totalitarian tiptoe, the Luciferian plan for full spectrum control. Before I wrap up, let me kind of give you some encouragement, right? This is, uh, you know, pretty heavy stuff. How do we respond to this not-so-secret march uh, toward global tyranny? First of all, we need to remember they're using fear as a weapon. They've weaponized fear. Uh, Psychology Today had an article not long ago, there are many things that motivate us, but the most powerful motivator of all is fear. The Luciferians know quite well how to play on our fears, but don't fall for it. God's Word says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you know what uh, that uh, is really fascinating to me? The, v- the verse right after the verse that serves as the premise for my you know, 15-year study and pr- uh, production of the Spirit of the Antichrist two-volume set. Remember, that's based on 1 John 4, 3. The Spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. The very next verse says this, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. So in my afternoon session, I'm going to be talking about exposing the Luciferian depopulation agenda. And it's not for the weak of stomach, but uh, I know there are a lot of great sessions out there, but if you can come back, that's what we're going to be talking about. Again, all of this is in our Spirit of the Antichrist uh, books, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Volume 1 has 38 pages of bibliographic citations. Volume 2 has 66 pages, so you can do your own research. Don't just take my word for it. We also have some DVD sets out there at our table. Love for you to come by and meet my wife and my daughter and I have another daughter and my granddaughter running around here somewhere. Hopefully you get to meet them as well. Uh, we put together a streaming bundle of all of our uh, prophecy related videos. If you're interested in that, you can pick up that information at our table as well. We have some other end times uh, books available such as What Lies Ahead and The Great Last Day's Deception and some books on other subjects as well. Uh, my chart book, every chart that you see me show in here we put together over a hundred of our most requested charts into a chart book which is available either in print or in digital format in PowerPoint form. So thank you very much for allowing me to share this information. God bless you.